Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. Hello, I'm here back in sunny, beautiful Rhode Island. Um, I dragged myself back up to New England uh, the week after Fine Woodworking Live because we realized that we hadn't actually discussed the conference afterwards as we intended to. So I came back, I tracked down Brian Brazil, um, I forced him to have breakfast, and now I'm going to talk about the conference. So, Brian, just an overview, what do you think of the the whole conference? Um, I thought it was great. Um, Saw some great talks, Uh, got to hang out a little bit and drink a couple beers and chat with woodworkers that's always my favorite part of the conference is just getting together with people and yeah you, you don't get to get together with beers for you know with a lot of woodworkers so i'd agree that's always the best part is spending the full weekend with other woodworkers now um of the classes which classes did you take uh let's see i took the the bowl carving class um uh steve Lotta's uh in like the uh, marketry class or the sunburst yeah. class there. Um, Terry's uh, finishing class, finishing, fixing, finishing, actually, fixing, finishing F ups would be a perfect title for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and probably a few others that I can't think of at the moment. Okay. Now, with the, with the ball carving class, that was, um, that was green carving, right? It was, uh, it was more in line with, like the spoon carving that's all the craze these days than what you think of a traditional bowl. It's not on a lathe, correct? Yeah, that was all hatchet work and uh, to kind of, you know, here's half a log, make a uh, a bowl out of it. Are those bowls watertight? They are if you finish them, I guess. <laughs> um, they're probably not watertight. It depends on the depends on the wood, but I mean, I would, if I was going to use it for Something that I really cared about being watertight, I'd probably finish it with like an epoxy or even just polyurethane. But it, I didn't I didn't make it to those classes, but in the pictures I saw, and I know that um, Peter Follinsby had a bunch of pictures of them in his presentation in the morning, um, they seem more like display bowls or serving bowls than something you're going to drink soup out of. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely, they tend to be bigger as well, so, you know, it's something you put fruit in or... Even salad, I guess, something that's, you know, can be in, I wouldn't want, yeah, personal perspective anyway, I probably wouldn't want to eat out of a bowl that was that porous. Now, do you do that kind of green work in your own work? Was it uh, was it applicable to the type of furniture you're making? Or was it just interesting to see something that's so outside of normal machine work? Um, it's something that I'm looking to get into. So... You know, like, I'm a little bit late on the uh, spoon craze, but that's <laughs> that's going to be my summer adventure, I think, is uh, sitting by the fire pit and making spoons. And that seems, it seems kind of relaxing and a nice way to spend, you know, a little time just whittling away. There are definitely worse ways to spend a summer afternoon. Um, all right, so with Terry's class and the finishing, I took her class last year, where she wasn't talking about mistakes, per se. She was just talking about finishing. And... She was fantastic. She's a little bundle of energy. But in terms of the class, she squeezed so much into whatever it was, the hour and 20 minutes of the class, that you got a wonderful overview and a lot of, okay, don't do this because it's ridiculous or it doesn't work or whatever, but not quite enough to really understand how to do any single finish. 
with the mistakes, did was she able to go into them enough where you could you feel you could fix a lot of these mistakes? Yeah, yeah. For the most part, since the she actually did a, a great uh, had a great way of doing it. There was she divided it into three parts: the woodworking part, the finishing part, and the after finish part. Where she dealt with you know a lot of finishing mistakes start at the workbench. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have a proper uh, proper surface to finish, then you can't get a proper finish out of it. So she went through, you know, the woodworking end of things and fixing, you know, mistakes there and making sure that you do it right. And then some common finish mistakes. Um, she was able to squeeze a lot of stuff in. The only kind of downside was that a lot of people were asking questions. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted Terry to be able to cram as much stuff in there as possible because you knew that she had, you know, another hour's worth of stuff that she could have tapped into and it would have been great to see. But, you know, obviously people have questions about, you know, the finishing stuff. Right. Now, yeah, so questions got answered, but she didn't get through everything she she could have. Now, with um with the mistakes, to break those stages up, so if you have mistakes prior to finishing, I'm assuming those are mistakes that you realize during the finishing process. Cause if you're, if you find the mistake prior to finishing, it seems very straightforward to fix. But if you find, if you don't find it till you put that first coat of finish on, then you realize, Oh my gosh, I got swirl marks everywhere. I didn't sand it properly. That would that's another story. Was that the kind of thing she was fixing? Yeah. Mostly, you know, things like swirl marks, you know, how to, you know, dispose of your sandpaper early enough that you're not leaving swirl marks and, you know, ways to avoid that kind of mistake using a raking light. A lot of people don't use a raking light. I usually don't use a raking light. Um, you know, that kind of stuff that you can actually see see the mistakes before you put the finish on. Because quite often, I'll put a put some finish on something go, oh, crap, what have I done? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it wasn't, it was more, these are the right techniques and the things to look for so you don't have these mistakes when you get to finishing. Then, okay, you just put a coat of finish on, now let's fix your swirl marks. Yeah, yeah, and... The second part was kind of how you deal with that, which with swirl marks is pretty much sand the whole thing down and redo it. But um, yeah, a lot of like pre-finishing techniques, um, like using uh, a, a little uh, shellac, spec coat of shellac over stuff, uh, which is usually a good idea if you're finishing anything that might blotch. Um, spent a lot of time talking about, you know, blotching woods and how she doesn't think that's acceptable to take to a client. Okay. Okay. As a professional finisher, I could see her having that opinion. Um, and what kind of mistakes did she talk about in the post-finishing? I'm assuming that a piece is done and it somehow gets damaged or scratched. That's the kind of thing she was fixing in the post-finishing spot? Yep. Stuff that gets dented, uh, scratched, stuff like that. Um, how do you, she uses a lot of the, uh, like that plastic wood stuff that you get at the, the big box store. The, uh, it's two part epoxy kind of putty that you squish together and, she showed how to blend that into a piece if you get a really serious, really seriously bash it. Okay, that's that's interesting. Now, in the context of all these uh, fixing these mistakes, did she focus across the board on lots of different types of finish, or did she hone in on you know if you use finish X or finish Y, it's it's less prone to mistakes and it's easier to fix mistakes? Did she direct you towards any particular type of finish? Not really. Most of the fixes were pretty, pretty generic and would work with, with most fixes with most uh, finish types. Okay, okay. Um, and now, what about 
um, Steve's Lattice, Steve Lattice class with the inlay. Um, I saw him do the, the stringing at the, uh, the event last year. Um, but this is another one. I don't think I made it to any of the classes that you took. Um, so how is he doing the, um, how's he doing the inlay? The, from what I've seen with inlay, you can cut it with, is it a trebuchet? What's the, no, trebuchet is a, is a catapult, isn't it? Yes. Um, there's a, there's a specific tool that, that they use to cut inlay with. It's a, it's a French saw. And then lots of people do it with a router or, or a scroll saw or jigsaw. So how, how is he cutting them? And then what's he doing? Oh, he was doing, well, it was a big panel. So he was mostly, it was a sunburst array. So it was pretty much cutting a bunch of triangles out um, and then trimming them to fit. Most of it was about, he was using uh, high glue and like hammer veneering. So most of the talk was about hammer veneering and a little, uh, he gets on a lot of tangents. Um, And one of the best tangents I thought was how they came up with the, the old brown glue kind of style because that's a uh, urea and hide glue mix and so he figures at some point somebody get upset with the uh, the master and pissed in the glue pot <laughs> but they found out that that makes the glue work better so. <laughs> okay I'm going to leave that there um so the the patterns that he's doing, they're they're consistent with like what I think of like this, this the beading and the stringing that he does, where it's all these geometric patterns and you're you're cutting arcs and things like that. That's how he's doing his inlay, also, or is he inlaying organic leaf shapes and just kind of doing stuff by eye? Oh no, this was a well, this is a full panel, so it was pretty much just you know he did a big uh, cut up one big arc with the. Um, like a compass or dividers. Um, but other than that, it was all, the whole thing was covered. If it's made up of lots of little triangles, is he assembling the little pieces into a panel and then veneering that, or he's putting them on one little piece at a time? Um, he's putting them on one little piece at a time. Okay. And that's the advantage of the, of the hammer veneering is he can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't need to worry about the, in a, it gets rid of a lot of a lot of issues with having to you know get the panel into the thing, um, get it all glued up in one in one go. You can kind of lay a piece down, hammer it down, and then fit the next piece. Cut, make the cuts. So you know, fit it all. You're putting in an oversized piece. Probably has a couple a couple edges that the mating edges that are trimmed properly, but then the other the the outside edges as it's being glued in are oversized. So you cut them once it's in place to keep everything lined up properly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. He oversized it and then would trim it to what he expected it to be, and then fit the next piece on and trim that. And so he cut every piece oversized so that you have enough trimming room, basically. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. And what was the other class you took? Jeez, now I have to remember. Um, this is a test. <laughs> did you take, um, did you take Mark's carving class? Um, what do you think of that? Um, that was great. Uh, it's not something that I would be doing necessarily, but, uh, it was, it was a Sunday morning. There was that was the most interesting talk, and it was fun to watch Mark 
go at it with the power tools there. Although I did cry a little bit when uh, he was using the rasps that way. So <laughs> I'm not going to comment that Mark's rasping technique. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that'd be a very, a very reasonable way to carve a bowl. It would be. It would. It probably would be a little slow, but I'm well. Depending on the, you know, size chunks that you're taking out with your particular Arbor Tech thing. Yeah, it would. It would depend on what what kind of bit you're using. Um, but I I highly recommend power carving. Everyone should try it. All right, so that's that's three of the classes. Did you take Mike's uh, Pekovich's layout class? I didn't make it to that one. That was when when it was all said and done. You sat back and said, "Well, this all makes sense. There's very there's nothing uh, revelatory here." But it was still it was so straightforward and it made so much sense and just kind of reminded you of the efficiencies you can build into a piece to make them go faster and reduce error. Um, it's a very simple thing, but it adds. I, th- I can appreciate why he's so prolific and efficient in his building because he's got these methods down where you're not thinking about stuff and you're not every time you pick up a piece you're not remembering how does it go by by labeling things and doing your mark out at the right times like for for panels he does lots of cabinets where the sides stick out an eighth of an inch relative to the top and the bottom or vice versa and then the the rails are proud of the styles and these lots of shadow lines on the face of his pieces but he keeps them all the same width does all his joinery and then rips an eighth or a sixteenth off the face to make them the different widths. And that just, things like that made so much sense where you're using one setup to cut all your tenons um, rather than have to readjust it based on the fact that this piece is an eighth of an inch narrower than the last one you did. That's cool. Um, I kind of looked at it at the description and it looked like it was going to be mostly a a talk on uh, using blue tape. So. <laughs> he does use quite a bit of blue tape, um, but all things being equal, I, seeing how he uses it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, every time I, I see his uh, mention of blue tape using uh, dovetails, or I guess he had one uh, an article recently about using it for mortises, mm-hmm. I kind of go, oh yeah, I should do that. Next time I cut some dovetails, I'm going to do that. And I never remember. <laughs> Did you see um, in the, the the marketplace is fairly small. For people who haven't attended, it's a the, the show is not set up as a marketplace, but they do have some select vendors. Did you happen to talk with the guys from Panorouter? No, I didn't. I I looked at it. Um, that's about all I have to do with routers. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's a really neat tool. I mean, it's not inexpensive, but compared to the alternatives, it is cheap. Um, it's, it goes for about, I think it's, the full thing is a little over two grand, I think. Um, the show special was like 1900 Um But for like chair joinery, it, I could absolutely see it. If you're going to build any amount of things or you're going to sell things with that kind of angled joinery, I think it'd be an absolute no-brainer. It was a really neat tool. Yeah. Uh, didn't Mark Spagnuolo get one of those recently and get yelled at for it or get uh, shamed by the internet for having an expensive tool? Um, he may have one of them, but he had, I think he, I think he actually got rid of it. What's the bigger yellow one? Um, the multi-router? He has a multi, he had a multi-router, which the multi-router is like 3,200. Um, but it's all cast, whereas the panel router is all machined aluminum. Um, so I presume that that's where they get the cost savings. I've, I've played with a multi-router. They had one in Highland, uh, Highland Woodworking when I went down for a course. And it's a very, 
you it's it seemed no no one instructed me on the multi router, whereas I sat through the little lecture on the panel router and saw how you'd set it up. But the multi router strikes me as much more complicated. But I suspect once you get through the learning curve of both of them, they're going to work equally well. I don't know anyone who has a multi router who doesn't like it. Yeah, I, when I was first started out, I was watching a lot of woodworks uh, with David Marks, and that's I think the reason why uh, why Mark Spagnolo was so obsessed with getting a multi router because um, that was the same. Same kind of experience. I saw saw David's show, and he was like cutting everything with the multi router. And I'm like, I need to get a multi router. And then I saw the price tag on it, and I said, I don't need to get a multi router. So that's why you use mostly Hansels. <laughs> exactly. Although those are getting a little more expensive than the multi router at this point. Yeah, they are. They are now at the show. They had um, Lee Valley and Lee Nielsen were there. I don't think there were any other hand tool makers there. No, I don't think so. Do you see any anything interesting from from either of those companies besides Vic? Vic is always interesting. <laughs> um, actually, my Veritas order just came in last night, so um, that was I spent last night sh- uh, sharpening everything up. Uh, What'd you get? I well, I, I actually splurged. Um, it's my birthday coming up, so I decided that I have been looking at the NX or the not the NX, the DX, sorry, DX sixty hand plane or the block plane that they have. Is that the the fancy like stainless steel one? Yeah, the one that looks like a spaceship. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I, it was. Way more than one should ever spend on a on a block plane, but it feels so good in your hand that I was just like, you know what? This is my birthday gift to myself. What blade did you go for in it? The correct one. The PMV-11. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. Anything else you want to share about the uh, conference before we wrap up? Yeah. Well, uh, more Actually, a couple more things from uh, Lee Valley. Okay. Um, I got the, uh, the bench, uh, the bench axe. Okay, you bought the axe. Yeah, Vic talked me into it. Um, I was kind of looking at it because I've been looking at getting into some of the, the green woodworking stuff. And you need a, a decent axe. And I was like, yeah, I don't really trust this Veritas thing. I, not that I don't trust Veritas tools. I do love Veritas tools. But but as with many of them, it's its own thing. Like It looks like no other axe you'll see on the market. Yeah, it looked like something out of Blade Runner. That's why I was like, this is really? Okay, maybe I'll... Yeah, well, I'm not terribly traditional, so what the hell... I'll give it a try, and apparently the whole thing, the whole blade is the PMV eleven steel. Oh, yeah. That's I did not know that, and the and the the handles balsa wood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a hickory handle, um, and it's got that weird little ball set up for the the blade is connected with the with. Yeah, for people who haven't seen it, the blade <laughs> the blade is on one side of the handle the handle's not the blade's not centered in the handle and then there's i think it's cast aluminum maybe and it's kind of like half a football but then it's got a like a, a mortise inside that takes the uh the handle so this piece fits over the handle and screws into the blade yeah and there's a little bit of leather in there to keep it keep it tight okay and did you get the do you, they make a left and a right hand version of it is that based solely on which hand you use, if you're left-handed or right-handed? Or, like so many tools, to approach the workpiece from the from an angle, you might need both, depending on which way you're approaching the piece? As far as I can tell, I just have the right-handed one, and I can't think of a time that I would use the left-handed one. Okay. I just Since it's only a single bevel blade, right? So I, I wasn't sure... Um, I wasn't sure based on the fact that it was a single bevel. Maybe. I'm not a terribly good axe user, so uh, somebody that knows what they're doing with axes would probably come back and say, this is why you're wrong. But I 
don't know the first thing. So, okay. Well, you'll have to let us know how it works out. Um, anything else? No, it was a great show, and I, if you are able to make it out, it's a. I think they're doing four events next year. It's a little unclear, um, but in the, all the conversations I had, it seems that they're planning to do this event again, the main fine woodworking live in Massachusetts, probably at the same venue, which is a very good venue for it. Um, and then they're talking about doing other conference, other seminars in other places. And they put a slide up that showed fine woodworking live 2019 Tampa. And in talking to them, they're not sure that that event is actually going to be called Fine Woodworking Live. They're going to do something in Tampa, and they're talking about three other venues. But they seem to be more like one- or two-day, full-day classes, and they're only going to be open to 50 to 70 people, not the couple hundred that were at the live event, was was what I got in talking to them. Yeah, I, I think they said the one at Tampa is going to be at Tom's house. That's that's what I heard. And his mom now lives across the bay, so I think that any, any excess, uh, we're going to stay with Tom's mom. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, so, all right. Well, thank you for sitting down with me, and I look forward to uh, seeing you at Fun Woodworking Live 2019. Hopefully in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. And now, dear listener, I'd like to invite you to learn a little bit more about Kyle Barton. As our regular news uh, correspondent, he has provided what was going on in the woodworking community for the past year or so. And after all that hard work and some conversations with him, we're going to bring him on as a constant third co-host. So this is a little, just a little chat that Kyle and I had about where he currently stands within his woodworking passion. You know, I've been a member of the guild since it started. Yeah, up. so have I. And then when he did the he did the subscription model, you know, where he was like, okay, now you just have to buy a project. And I mean, until recently, um, you know, I did buy uh, Daryl Peart's upcoming project just because, you know, hey, I like the green and green stuff. I want to see mm-hmm. how he does it. Which project but, is Daryl Peart doing? He's doing his Aurora side table. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I picked that up, but... It, you know, there's a lot of projects that, you know, he does now. I mean, if I was a beginning woodworker, I'd probably buy them. But now I'm in my little niche, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, no, I don't really care about that. I mean, he did the dining room chair, which was a traditional dining room chair with those, you know, you know, trapezoidal seats and all that kind of stuff. And I went, yeah, that's great and all. But yeah, if I ever need to do that, I can do that. And I really didn't see any need to subscribe to that. And you know, I love Matt and uh, uh, all the stuff he does as far as the traditional stuff, but it's never anything I'm going to build, so I have never bought any of those projects. Right. You know, it, you know I, I love but, what he does. It's just but I think that's that's style. true of yeah. – that's the journey is you go from yeah. – you know, you first join woodworking and you want to – oh, it's woodworking. It doesn't matter what it is. I want to know about exactly. it. Um, yeah. And then you develop what you want to work on and the kind of things you want to do and the styles yeah. you want to do. Yeah, and and I've got in the well. I was in a green and green niche, and now I'm in a, <laughs> a seating <little>. niche, <laughs> just a little bit. And now I'm in the seating niche, and uh, I, you know, it, it just inspires me. And especially, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm just swept up, and I probably have too much. Uh, um, I don't know what what I want to say. Uh, <laughs> allure for 
Peter Galbraith that, I mean, you mm. know, it's like, you know, you know, he's like, you know, Moses on the mountain. when He speaks to me sometimes. It's mm. like, holy crap. This, yeah, I mean, he is, he is so good. And, uh, and he's gotten me into the seating stuff. So I'm really excited in a couple of weeks when I'll be at, uh, Chris Horst shop learning about, uh, the, um, the well stick chairs, which is kind of like that's one in of the conjunction with the new book, right? Well, he's got a uh, he's got a book. He's got two books. He just came out with a book from John Brown on, um, and it's a book that was published years ago. But I think uh, Lost Arts Press secured the um, U.S. rights to republish that book, and mm-hmm. of course, I already pre-ordered it. But I think. Um, Chris Williams, who was a disciple of John Brown, is writing another definitive book about his uh, experience with John Brown and legacy and all that kind of stuff. And I think the reason that that class is taking place is uh, Chris Williams is uh, from England or Welsh, and uh, he's coming over to actually uh, do the final proofreads of the book. So they okay. said, hey, while you're over here, might as well teach a class. Right. No, okay. Yeah. This will explain my – expose yeah. my ignorance of ha- having married a Scot but not being one yeah. myself. Welsh is from Wales? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's English. It's not Scottish. So. Right, but no, 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 no. Wales is yeah. not – Wells is no more England than Scotland is. That I've learned. Right, 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 right. Wells is its own. Yeah, yeah. This, like, the Scots and the Welsh are united in their distaste and dislike of the English. English. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but uh, Scottish are at least on the uh, the far perimeter from England. I think the Welsh are in the middle of uh, most well, the, of England. The Welsh are on the on the left coast, and the yeah. Scottish are on the. North right. Coast. Yeah. North and yeah. left don't really work, but, but it's Ireland where they're in a separate, separate area, which yeah. where all my family comes from. <laughs> <laughs> you don't strike me as Irish. Um, uh, German Irish. Uh, I got about half German, about half Irish. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we celebrate Ireland heavy around my family. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to, uh, I, the friends we usually go over for St. Patty's Day, uh, their house was under major construction. So we actually went over my house for St. Patty's Day. And it wasn't quite the same. But uh, <laughs> you want to come up for St. Patty's Day next year, um, we'll drink you under a table. Okay. All right. Well, we'll do that. Of course, my wife's Russian. So uh, as long <laughs> as we're doing vodka, we'll, we'll, we'll prevail. Um, we, on St. Patty's Day, quite frankly, we usually do beer because it's Irish. Um <laughs> We do a lot of car bombs, uh, but you know, if, if you, car bombs, yes. yeah. um, <laughs> if you want to, uh, you want to include some vodka in there, that's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So, 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 so what's your family now? You're in your, you're native American. Not at all. My name is, <laughs> I know your name is, but that's it. it's just my name. Um, all right. My I'll, I'll explain the name first. My dad is Douglas Platke Jr. Oh, by the way, it was fantastic to meet your dad. So well, thank you. uh, I don't think I said my proper goodbyes to him. So please say I absolutely will. Yeah. Um, but he is he is Douglas Jr. Uh-huh. Um, his uncle, his grandfather was Ralph Guida on his mother's side. His uncle 
was Ralph Guida Jr. My dad's cousin, who is older than my dad, is Ralph Guida III. My dad's, I guess his first cousin once removed, but his cousin's son, who is older than I am, is Ralph Guida IV. Mm-hmm. And that's where they were when I was born, but they are up to now Ralph Guida VI. Wow. Um, my dad thought that that was a little egotistical and did not want <laughs> me to be Douglas Plotky III. So yeah. um, he being a child of the 60s, uh, yeah. they picked a name out of a name book that uh-huh. I have the same initials as my dad, but only the same last name. Um, so <laughs> Diami well, is – was that? Yeah, that, that that that's good. That's cool. You yeah, know, the, D- the same initials. Yeah, exactly. So Diami is in North American Indian name, and people ask me, "Well, which Indian?" I, I honestly don't. I don't know. It's just it was always explained to me as North American Indian. Um, I understand they had different languages. I I don't know. <laughs> um, but it it's just the same initials. Um, and then you know genetically on my dad's side we are Polish and German. Mm-hmm. And on my mom's side, it's German and Italian. And I believe there's a little – on my dad's side, I think there's a teeny bit of English thrown in there also. Um, yeah. But Plotki is a uh, is a Polish-Jewish name. So, of mm-hmm. course, my dad was raised as a Polish Catholic. Um, of course. Yeah. And I'm an atheist. So, you know, that's how it works out. <laughs> Uh, but my my great grandfather was a Polish Jew, and his wife was a Polish Catholic, and the children were all Catholic, and it just kind of went down from there. Um, yeah, but uh, but that's that's uh, that's, that, that, that's very confusing. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Here, dear listener, is Kyle on Peter Galbert and Welsh stick chairs. But I'd like to take a class on rockers and I've talked to him about it and he's going, yeah, that's gotta be at least a, a, a two, maybe three week course to do rockers because the way he designs the rockers, he has a whole formula and all types of, you know, different, you know, who are you designing the rocker for? Is it for a, a pregnant woman or not, not a pregnant woman, but a woman who's nursing you know, well, you got to, you know, take into account the weight of the baby, you know, as, as, as you design the, the rockers and, and things of that nature. So he's uh, he's definitely got it down to a science. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you uh, you had a chance to sit in in his class, didn't you? Yeah, the, yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got this uh, video. I'm only about halfway through it. Right. That's the uh, one that released like, just before the show. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, it just goes into so much detail and it's just like, okay, even if I'm not making Windsor's, if I'm making any type of turning for furniture, you need to watch this video because he basically walks through it. Now, it's not as good, like I said, if you had a class, you know, with him and he could, you know, you know, hold your hand through the stuff, but it's, it's a, it's a good substitute for it. But I think, I think they're both, you you want both because just the class... You only yeah. retain so much. You learn so much, but you only retain yeah. some portion of it. Oh, one of the best things is that class I took in Sterling with him. That was about two weeks after um, his his book was released uh, from Lost Art Press, the uh, Chairmaker's Notebook. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'm like, you know, it was just released. It wasn't in, you know, the actual hard copy format. I just had the PDF format because they released that first. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, just scanning through that before the class, you know, just cramming. And I uh, got in there, and the class, he goes, yeah, this is the first class I've taught where people have actually read the books. So, <laughs> yeah. And and actually, he had copies of the, uh, I guess, the final prints. You know, they weren't bound or anything. They were okay. just loose leaf. So as we're going through the class, you know, he would say, oh, yeah, the reference this, you know, in this section. So if you have any questions, please ask me. And, you know, here's the 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 narrative for it. And, uh, it, it was pretty interesting. So he goes, yeah, this book's going to, going to, you know, change the way I teach classes. So, um, that's, why can't you say it? it's pretty interesting? But, yeah. I'm looking uh, forward to, uh, to reading his book, I, which I need to buy before I read, but I've only yeah. heard so many good things about it. I I'm definitely interested yeah. in, um, in checking it out and I don't have any intention to build chairs the way he does, but I think it'd still be informative. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he has, I mean, probably the whole first or the half of the book is about, okay, here's how I set up my shop. Here's the tools you use. Here's how I sharpen the tools. I mean, you know, he he takes you through that process before you even start, you know, building a chair. Right. So he yeah. he reminds me of Adam Carabini in that I will never build the way he builds but yeah. I will. I love taking Adam Carabini classes because it was always informative, and it's just it. It has informed the way I work, though I work entirely differently than him. Um, yeah. I think it'd be true of um, of Peter also having now taken a class with him and actually had the opportunity to meet him. Exactly, exactly. And all I can say is I hope you recorded this portion of our uh, conversation. I actually have. I put. I turned it back on. <laughs> you could just post this. <laughs> In depth into chair making. No. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm real excited about uh, about this uh, Chris Williams uh, course because I don't know if you've ever seen any of these uh, Windsor chair or uh, excuse me Welsh stick chairs but i mean the the angles of the legs are just so much more dramatic than uh your typical windsor chair and it's just very interesting so and they don't use any steam bending you know how the windsors you always steam bend stuff right uh, they tend they tend to piece pieces of wood together to uh and then you know use lap joints and whatnot to uh make the curve so it's kind of a different oh okay overall uh, um, you know, it looks very similar to Windsor chair some, somewhat, but I'm the, assuming there's a shared heritage somewhere. If you go back far enough. Yeah. 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 There's a shared heritage. I think, um, uh, the Welsh stick chairs kind of evolved into what they called the English Windsors. And then, uh, those really got popular in the colonial area here in, uh, the, the U S and we kind of made our own from the English Windsor mm -hmm. chairs which tend to be, from what I see, a little bit more blocky. Ours are a little bit more graceful, but of course that's just my interpretation. But it's, it, it's still <laughs> what I would think of as a Windsor chair as opposed to these uh, these yeah. Welsh stick chairs. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the Windsor, the English Windsor compared to the American Windsor, I think is a little bit more graceful. But I think we spent a lot more time defining the form than they did. Okay. Um, 
And they really caught on. And what's what's really interesting is the original Windsors back in the day were painted. They were mainly outdoor chairs. Really? For in your garden. And they were painted these really obnoxious green colors. <laughs> and, you know, now you see them and they're all, this, you know, this refined chair and stuff of that nature. But they actually started out as basically your New England Adirondack chair. <laughs> hmm. You know, that is but, a chair for my absolutely hate is the Adirondack chair. Yeah, but, you know, basically <laughs> it's the way. But, I mean, the the construction is just bulletproof. You know, the way the, the legs and the and the conical tenons mm-hmm. go into the to the seats, I mean, that, that joint is bulletproof. I mean, the more you sit in it, the, actually, the stronger that joint is. And um, and the, the use of woods and using, you know, lightweight woods for the seat and uh, strong, like, maple for the legs. And right. then use the, um, what they call, um, you know, using the oaks and, uh, and stuff like that for the spindles and the, uh, more, you know, steam bent parts, which really have a lot of give to them. The ring porous woods, uh, as I call them, uh, really gives a lot of strength to those things. And I mean, you know, you got Windsors that have been around, you know, since the beginning of, of, of the country, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, their their strength is undeniable, and um, you know that's kind of what attracted me to them at first. But um, I think really what attracted to me was you know uh, um, basically hearing uh, Peter Galbert's first uh, first lecture on them. I, right. I really, I really had. I think I've told this story a number of times. I don't know if I've told it on this podcast, but it's been like you know the first time I saw. Uh, uh, Peter Galbert's presentation, I was not particularly enamored with the Windsors, but I heard from a number of people, oh, he's great lecturer. You should go see him. So I went and saw him. And, you know, within the first 30 minutes of the lecture, I was like, I need to take a class from this guy. And uh, since then, I pretty much built nothing more than seating. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so... I, he is a he is definitely an inspiration, but I mean there are a lot of great uh, Curtis Buchanan. I've never taken a class from from him, but he has such a great wealth of videos on YouTube and plans that he sells, and um, and uh, one of his, I guess, um, uh, students, um, Elia Bazzari, mm-hmm. a class from him actually a three week class. Um, on one of Curtis's more modern interpretations called the Velda chair. And that was just fantastic. Uh, uh, taking a class there, we actually did all the turnings, mostly in the Windsor chair classes that you will take. They're usually week long classes. Usually all the turnings are done for you just because, it's you just know, too time consuming. It's too time consuming to learn and teach someone to do all those type of turnings, especially if you're doing some of the more, ornate uh baluster turnings and uh and so um usually those will all be turned for you so mainly you're concentrating on doing the spindles uh steam bending the wood and carving the seats and um so that three week long course we really looked at every aspect of it and it was a contemporary chair it was okay. a chair i've always lusted after i've seen that chair and i went Oh man, I want to build that one day. And as soon as I saw a class pop up for it, and it was a three week class, I went into my boss and I said, 
I got to take this class. And he goes, <laughs> okay. My boss is a great guy. And he basically said, I understand your passion is woodworking. As long as you answer your emails every night, I'll let you go away for three weeks. So <laughs> that is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that was good. So, but. All right. Well, I will probably set this up as like a, a bonus episode to introduce you. <laughs> um, but it's 1120 and uh, I'm going to oh, call yeah. it a night. I know. I do. I, I just want to say, hi, how are you doing? Good night. <laughs>